Well, what a wonderful conference this is already. The two messages we've heard from Conrad and Phil have been outstanding, and it was worth the entire conference just to come and hear those two messages. So it's a joy to be back with you. I was here three years ago uh, and spoke at the Christian Worldview Conference, and uh, it was a wonderful time to have with Tim Cantrell and his family and surrounding brothers and sisters in the Lord, and so I've been looking forward to this return for quite some time, and uh, Tim's heart and mind is where my heart and mind is, and I knew I would be coming uh, to stand with a brother of kindred spirit, and that what excites his heart excites mine, and what's a call to, to arms for him is a call to arms for me. So it's a privilege uh, to be here with you and to share this time together. He asked me if I would just say a word about our uh, conference tomorrow. We'll have a conference inside of a conference tomorrow. Um, I'm going to be speaking uh, all day tomorrow on expository preaching, and then Friday morning on expository preaching. And we're going to talk about, actually, what is expository preaching? What is the meaning of expository preaching? And What is it not? Because a lot of people claim to be expositors who in reality are not expositors. And so we want to differentiate. And what are the marks of true expository preaching? And there's room for much divergence from background and temperament and personality. Uh, There's a world of difference from Calvin to Luther to Edwards to Whitfield to Spurgeon to Lloyd-Jones to MacArthur. I mean, there's a little bit of a spectrum here. But what are the threads that are running through um, their exposition? But more than that, uh, is this on okay or is my fading out? Okay. Um, But more than that, really, what does the Scripture have to say about biblical preaching, expository preaching? So, we'll look at uh, Moses, we'll look at Nehemiah, we'll look, or Ezra, we'll look at uh, the Lord Jesus Christ himself and his exposition, uh, we'll look at Peter, we'll look at Paul, and look at biblical um, foundations for expository preaching. And then, uh, time permitting, um, I'll put up a set of notes and we'll walk through one way how someone might Um, pull their manuscript together and work off of it. Uh, We'll have Q&A throughout the whole day tomorrow and Friday morning. It'll be very interactive uh, to the extent you want to ask questions. And so the format uh, will lend itself to um, our interaction. In fact, Tim, if we could, if we could almost set up a lectern down here on the floor so I can just be close on one condition that you don't all then sit on the back pew, okay, and just be back row Baptist back there. Um, I'll move up if you'll stay still, and uh, that way we can talk back and forth with each other about this very important uh, ministry of preaching because I do believe no church will ever rise any higher than its pulpit. Um, I think it will define the watermark of a church, and it will define the worship, it will define the fellowship, it will define the evangelism, it will define the ministry involvement uh, in a church. Every church may not live up to its pulpit, 
but uh, every pulpit will establish what will be um, the height of what this church will become. So, uh, that's tomorrow and Friday morning. I would love to see you, and you don't have to be a preacher to come. If you're a small group Bible study leader, if you're thinking about going into the ministry, um, if you're a, a lay elder and you're called upon to periodically fill in for the pastor, if you're a Sunday school teacher, um, I, I think that you would derive much, much help and much good from this. So, that's what we have to look forward to tomorrow. But now, today, uh, I've been asked to address you on the subject of guarding the gospel. So if you would take your Bibles and turn with me to the book of Galatians, Galatians chapter 1. I want to begin by reading this portion of Scripture that will be the focus uh, of our time together in this session. Galatians 1, I want to begin reading in verse 6. The Apostle Paul is the writer uh, This is the first chapter of the first epistle that he would write. And so as Paul begins, really, his writing ministry, um, Paul writes in Galatians 1, beginning in verse 6. Paul writes, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him who called you by the grace of Christ for a different gospel which is really not another. Only there are some who are disturbing you and want to distort the gospel of Christ. But even if we are an angel from heaven, should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you, he is to be accursed. As we have said before, so... I say again now, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. For am I seeking the favor of men or of God? Or am I striving to please men? If I were still trying to please men... I would not be a bondservant of Christ. Strong words, are they not? In these verses, the Apostle Paul writes to the Galatians in order to fight for the purity of the gospel which has been entrusted to him by none other than the Lord Jesus Christ himself. Normally, as we come to Paul's epistles, the later 12 that he will write, it would be exactly at this point that Paul would express his thanksgiving for the recipients of the letter. That will be his standard practice. And in his other epistles, Paul will say something like this at the very outset, at the front doorstep, of the letter as he makes his way into the reason for which he is writing. Normally, he would say, how I thank God for you. And normally, he would say, I have you in my heart. 
I have you in my every remembrance. Normally he would commend them for their faith and for their love and for their hope. Normally at this point in an epistle, Paul would say, I am praying for you constantly. But there is none of that here. Paul is not thankful for what is going on in Galatia. Instead, he is filled with holy zeal and righteous indignation for what he sees in the churches in Galatia. And Paul does not hold back. Specifically, he is rightly enraged that the gospel has come under attack. Instead of pastoral platitudes, there is only a scorching rebuke and a searing reproof. He he is worked up to a to a lather point. He he is worked up to a boiling point because the high ground of the gospel has been forsaken and has been forfeited. And what is worse, Paul has told the Galatians on the front end when he was there with them in person when he first came and preached the gospel on his first missionary journey. Paul told them not to fall for the false teachers who will come in after his departure. He told them after or before he left that there would be wolves who would come into the church. These false teachers would strike at the very heart of the one saving gospel of Christ and sure enough, they did and the Galatians capitulated and fell for it. And so here, in these words, Paul does not mince words. He is breathing holy fire. He pronounces divine judgment upon the perverters of the gospel. Uh, this is not a secondary issue. And Paul is not out on the periphery of Christendom where there are certain truths with which there is room inside the larger body of Christ for some difference of interpretation. No, this is at the very epicenter of of Christianity. This is a hill worth dying on. This is a hill Paul must die on. What we see from Paul here is he is contending for the faith. The same is needed today, quite frankly. Uh, The gospel has come under siege again, as it does in every generation, but it seems as if there is an accumulation of of false doctrine that just begins to stack up one on top of another as the fence posts keep being pushed out further and further and the heresies becoming more bizarre and more bizarre. Especially is this true with those who promote the soul-damning prosperity gospel, which is no gospel at all. It's not good news, it's bad news. It is incumbent upon the church on every continent in every generation to fight the good fight in order to guard the gospel. And if you do not guard the gospel, you do not guard anything that is worth protecting. It was Martin Luther who once said, the loyalty of the soldier 
is tested by where the battle is raging the strongest. There the soldier must advance to the front lines. Well, there is no reverse gear in the Apostle Paul. Uh, He's not looking for some safe little place to hide behind the skirts, Phil, uh, of some pastor someplace. Paul's not tripping over his pantyhose as he is addressing this issue. He is, as we heard in the last session, Paul is manning up. He is very passionate and he is very manly in addressing this head on. And I want to draw to your attention again. This is not hidden in the back of the epistle. That maybe you might get to the back, maybe you might not. Uh, This is not a midweek service, in other words. This is something that's put out there on Sunday morning on the front doorsteps of this epistle. You cannot get but a few verses into this epistle without, boom, Here it is on the front line. This is a matter of first importance. Other issues get in line behind this issue. So as we look at these verses, I want us to note four things. I want you to note first Paul's amazement. That's very clear as we look at verse 6. Paul is shocked. Paul is stunned. Just when you think nothing can shock you, you're stunned. Paul begins in verse 6. He says, I am amazed. And this word amazed is a very strong word. Uh, The word means to be astonished, to be bewildered, to be astounded. Uh, Paul is dumbfounded. And we would say in the vernacular today, this blows my mind. I don't even have a category for this. And Paul is perplexed, and not at the world, and not at the heathens, and not at the pagans. He he is amazed by the believers in Galatia. I, I am amazed that you are so quickly deserting him. Him. And what shocks Paul is this word quickly, that in other words, I have no more left town than you have already caved in to the pressure of these false teachers who are coming up. You have zero resistance whatsoever and zero discernment whatsoever uh, you, you, th- that you are so quickly deserting him. This word deserting is a military term. And it speaks of a soldier abandoning his position. He has been assigned a place on the wall. And he is to be on red alert. He is to have weapon in hand. He is to be vigil. He is to be on the outlook. He is to be looking for the advancement and the encroachment of of the enemy. The, The safety of others is at stake. Holding the fort and holding the position is at stake. And instead, Paul says, you have so quickly gone AWOL. You have bailed out on God. It's in the present tense that you are so quickly deserting Him. They are at this moment. 
deserting the Lord. Uh, They are presently forsaking the gospel. And it's in the middle voice, and the idea is, you are entirely responsible for this. It is laid at your feet. And please note, as they are deserting the gospel, in reality, please note this pronoun, you are deserting him. You see that? I hope your translation is accurate enough to have the pronoun him in it. And it's not some paraphrase that leaves it out. You're abandoning Almighty God himself as you forsake the gospel. Not just a system of theology or a confessional faith, as important as those are because they define who God is for us. But you are defining the person, the being, the character, the attributes, the actions of God himself. You're turning your backs on God and running away. Paul is saying you have become spiritual deserters in the day of battle. You have become spiritual turncoats. Uh, You have become defectors of the worst kind because you have capitulated and, and caved in. Please note here that God and the gospel are one. To receive the gospel is to receive God. To reject the gospel is to reject God. You can't have it both ways. You can't have God and reject the gospel. They stand together as one. And he goes on to say, Him who called you by the grace of God. This grace of God is the sovereign grace of God. This call is the effectual, irresistible, sovereign, overpowering, overruling call of God that triumphs over the resistance of sinful man and secures its results as God makes us willing in the day of his power. It is this God who called you by his grace. It is God who sought you in the world. It is God who found you when you were running away from him. It is God who drew you, even drug you, to the Lord Jesus Christ. It is this God by His Spirit who opened your eyes, opened your ears, opened your heart, took out your heart of stone, gave you a heart of flesh, raised you from the dead spiritually, gave to you the gifts of repentance and faith. It is this God who is the author and perfecter of your salvation. It is this God to whom you have turned your back. And for what? For fool's gold. If there was ever a group, ever a church that bought high and sold low, it was the Galatians. He will later say, oh, you foolish Galatians. You moronic Galatians. You You have deserted him who called you, note he says, for a different gospel. This word different 
heteros means different of another kind. Different of a totally another kind. It, it is in complete contradiction and contradistinction from the true gospel. It is, in, it is polar opposite. It is in complete juxtaposition for a different gospel. There are only two gospels. There are only two classifications of gospels. There is the true gospel, and there is the false gospel. And you can just stuff every ism and every cult and every perversion of the gospel and and layer that out, and every corruption of the gospel, you can put the whole smelly mess under this category of another gospel, and there is then, on the other hand, the one true gospel. There are Many ways to go to hell, there is only one way to go to heaven. There is the saving gospel, and there is the damning gospel. And Paul says, you have have been hoodwinked, you have been seduced, you have been deceived, you have been lied to, you have bought into it, because you have deserted God Himself for a different gospel. You're, you're like a drowning man who reaches out for a brick to hold you up. Uh, you, you are like a, a person entrapped in a house on fire, and you are reaching for a gallon of gas to put out the flame. This other gospel, this different gospel, Paul says, which is really not another Of course it's not another. It's a trash gospel. Uh, It it is not another true gospel. It is a soul-damning gospel. This squares up with what Jesus said in John 14, verse 6. I am the way. So how many ways are there? I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. I, I have translated that out of the original Greek, and this is, what it, this is how it reads. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. It means what it says and says what it means. Peter said, there is salvation in no other name. For there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. So this is Paul's astonishment and Paul's absolute amazement. God and his gospel are one. There is a solidarity between God and his gospel. Why would we say this? Three reasons. Number one, the gospel is from God. This is, this is God's solution. This is God's plan for man's dilemma. It's not man's solution. It is God's solution to man's dilemma. Romans 1 verse 1 says it is the gospel of God. Not about God, though it is about God. It is the gospel from God. It is the gospel that has come down out of heaven to man. It, it comes from another world. It comes from the infinite genius mind of God. And to reject 
that gospel leaves you nowhere. A second, it is the means by which God carries out all of His saving purposes upon the earth. Whatever it is that God is doing in a redemptive way and in a sanctifying way upon this earth, God is doing through His gospel. There is not one drop of grace outside of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Not one drop of saving, redeeming, or sanctifying grace. And third, this gospel is the fullest revelation of the character of God. If Jesus Christ is the image of the invisible God, which He is, Philip said, show us the Father and that's enough. Philip says, have you seen, uh, you've seen me? You've seen the Father. And the greatest expression of God in the Lord Jesus Christ is in His sin-bearing, substitutionary death upon the cross. There is the greatest revelation of the holiness of God, the righteousness of God, the love of God, the mercy of God, the sovereignty of God, the power of God, the immutability of God, etc., etc., etc. Every attribute of God can be poured through the keyhole of Calvary's cross and be amplified to the fullest expression of the attributes of Almighty God. No wonder Paul is shocked that you would give up the high ground. After such a short time as I was there. Now second, please note Paul's adversaries. The second half of verse 7 We see where the problem lies. It's with these false teachers. Just as God works through human instruments, so Satan works through human instruments. And the problem lies with the leaders who are the corruptors of truth. They are known as the Judaizers. He says in the second half of verse 7, only there are some who are disturbing you. That word some represents these unconverted, unregenerate, spiritual leaders who have come into the vacuum created by Paul's departure and have drugged their Jewish legalism into the church. And as they have brought this this legalism into the church, which says that you have to keep the law in order to be saved, and you have to keep the Mosaic ceremonial law by the efforts of the flesh in order to be sanctified, he says only there are some who are disturbing you. That this is not a neutral matter. And this is not a matter of, of, of little consequence inside the church. If this is allowed to go any longer, the damage may be irrepar- irreparable. He says, who are disturbing you? This is a, a Greek word that means to agitate, to trouble, to, to shake up. And it is shaking up their faith and it is shaking up their church, and it is disturbing the work of God 
at its most basic level, and it is disrupting their allegiance to the one true saving gospel. He says, who are disturbing you? False doctrine always disturbs the church. False doctrine is like a rattlesnake that is let loose in, a, in, a, in the nursery. And it's just a matter of time until it will sick its fangs and release its venom and leave behind a, a fatality. It says it, this, they are disturbing you and want to distort, note, want to distort their faith. This word distort means to change something into the opposite. It is to pull them off their total, complete reliance upon the truth in the Lord Jesus Christ, and in reality, pull them away from Christ Himself. They have tampered with the message. They have twisted the gospel. They have corrupted what... Paul had taught. This is not a small matter. Christ and grace, they were saying, and faith, are good only as far as it goes. You need something more than Christ. You need something more than grace. You need something more than faith. There's something that's missing still in your life. And we are here to provide that. Many such adversaries exist today. Some are those who want to add to Christ, add to grace, add to faith. You remember in the Reformation, the three central solas, sola gratia, sola fide, and solus Christos, that define the gospel at its most basic uh, and purest point. Salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, resting on the firm foundation of sola scriptura, scripture alone, and it rises to the highest pinnacle, pointing upward to soli deo gloria, for the glory of God alone. But there are many today who would add to these solas. They say salvation is by faith and good works. It is by faith and water baptism. It is by faith and spirit baptism. It is by faith and speaking in tongues. It is by faith and the Mass. It is faith and Hail Marys. It is faith and the Treasury of Merit. It is faith and indulgences. It is faith and last rites. It is faith and church membership. Now, there is no end to what can be concocted by evil minds to add to the perfection and the sufficiency of the gospel that is found in the Lord Jesus Christ. Other adversaries, rather than adding to, they take away. And they deny the Trinity. And they deny the deity of Christ. And they deny the virgin birth. They deny the sinless life. Uh, they deny the essentials of the person and work of Christ. Still others deny the exclusivity of salvation 
in Christ alone. They claim that there are others, as long as they are sincere, and as long as they are intentional in their religious efforts, that there are other roads that lead up to the top of the mountain that lead to God. And these two are adversaries that damn the souls of men. Other adversaries today deny the forensic imputation of the righteousness of Christ in the act of justification by faith, and they too are wheeling death blows against the gospel of Jesus Christ. And so what is the true gospel? The true gospel is found in the person and work of Christ. And Paul has already spoken to this in in this very chapter, at the end of verse 3 and in verse 4, just a couple of verses earlier, as Paul writes, the Lord Jesus Christ, now verse 4, who gave himself for our sins so that he might rescue us from this present evil age according to the will of our God and Father. Paul's already defined the gospel. Paul has already put it out there. Paul has already expressed it in its most concentrated statement that it is Jesus Christ who gave himself, obviously a reference to the cross, I have authority to lay my life down, I have authority to take it back up again, for our sins. He has saved us because of the condemnation of our sins. R.C. Sproul has written a book entitled, Saved From What? He talks about being on a college campus as a young man. He had just become a Christian. And a zealous student came up to him and said, Brother, are you saved? Sproul said it just scared him to death. No one's ever even asked him a question like that. And he ran back to his dorm room slammed the door, locked it, sat on his bed, and tried to think this through. I know I'm saved, but saved from what? Well, if you were to listen to the average prosperity gospel peddler today, you would say saved from poverty, saved from bankruptcy, saved from illness, saved from sickness, or we could add to it, saved from loneliness, saved from insecurity, saved from whatever, whatever, whatever. Sproul said, as I sat on that, on that dorm room bed and began to think, he said, the reality struck me that I am saved from God. Saved from the wrath of of God, saved from the judgment of God, saved from the condemnation of God. That is in reality the essence of the gospel, that the entire human race was in Adam, and when Adam fell, he pulled the entire human race down with it. And the wrath of God, Romans 1.18, is revealed from heaven against all unrighteousness and ungodliness of men, and that it is Jesus Christ who has come into this world to seek and to save that which is lost. 
Uh, Jesus did not come to make us rich. If so, he couldn't even live up to his own sermons and all of his followers were miserable failures. Uh, Jesus did not come for these other self-centered, narcissistic, uh, self-indulgent things that are put forward. He has come to rescue us from the judgment of God upon our sins. And this is Paul's adversaries, these Judaizers, who have risen up in the church and have corrupted the purity of the gospel of Jesus Christ. I want you to note third, Paul's anathemas. As we come to verse 8 and 9, these false teachers who sought to undermine the true gospel... Paul has some very strong words for them. He begins with a hypothetical. But even if we, refers to himself, it refers to his own traveling associates, but he's making the argument and making the point. It refers to himself, to Barnabas, to Silas, to Timothy, to Luke, Whoever would be with them. But even if we are an angel from heaven, that's about as escalated as it could be. Whether it be Michael or Gabriel or one of the chief angels or a ruling angel or a guardian angel or a seraphim or a cherubim or any elect angel. Even if we are an angel from heaven should preach to you a gospel contrary to what we have preached to you. If in any way we alter the message one iota, if in any way we remove one thread from the tapestry, if in any way we rearrange the furniture inside the room such that it is no longer the gospel that has been entrusted to us, and Paul, as he now says this, he is all but seething with righteous indignation, he says... He is to be accursed. It means to be devoted to destruction. It means to be damned. As Spurgeon would say, not merely condemned, but damned. Consigned to the flames of hell below. There is no room for neutrality on the part of the Apostle Paul or upon the Word of God for any altering of the one true saving gospel of Jesus Christ. And this didn't originate with Paul. Jesus himself said, it would be better if a millstone was put around your neck and you'd be cast into the deepest sea than to cause one of these little ones to stumble and to perish. With the Apostle Paul, there is a zero-tolerance policy for any mishandling of the one true saving gospel of Christ. And if we didn't get it the first time, Paul reloads the shotgun and fires it a second time in the next verse. He says in verse 9, 
And we have said before, in other words, it wasn't just verse 8, but when Paul was there, he said it himself while he was there in their very presence. As we have said before, I say again now. So, this isn't the first time that they've heard this. When Paul first came to the cities of Galatia in his first missionary journey, he told them on the front end, these guys are going to come in and, and corrupt the church, and I want to tell you again what God thinks about these false shepherds, these false prophets. He says, as we have said before, I say again, if any man... Be he an apostle, be he an angel, be he a self-appointed teacher. If any man is preaching to you, please note present tense. It implies it was still going on the day they received this letter from the Apostle Paul. As they received it and unrolled it and read it for themselves... This kind of preaching was going on at that very time in their churches. If any man is preaching to you, to you in the church, you're tolerating this in the church. This isn't some carnival out in the world. It's not some circus in Rome. You are putting up with this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the head of the church, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. He repeats this same shocking statement A second time in this letter, at the very outset in chapter 1, something that he has already told them when he was there, no doubt repeatedly, to emphasize the seriousness and the severity of this. Paul is saying, let him be damned. He deserves to go to hell. He should go to hell. Now we know from the rest of what Paul would write that Paul is longing for the salvation of every man and every woman. And Paul will say of his Jewish brethren when he writes to the Romans that he himself would be willing to perish and go to perdition if his own kinsmen according to the flesh could be brought to saving knowledge of Christ. We know that Paul is committed to the gospel, but what Paul says here, in one sense, is true of every unbeliever on planet earth. That they are already under the wrath of God. And it's as Jonathan Edwards said, in sinners in the hands of an angry God, they are held by a slender thread The board on which they walk over the flames is creaking and about to crack, and they are about to descend down into the pit below. Every unbeliever 
will be damned. Every person outside of Christ will go to hell forever and there be inflicted directly with divine wrath by Christ himself forever. But the hottest part of hell is surely reserved for those teachers who distort the gospel and point others to hell. Paul is fulfilling his duty and his obligation to God to bring this message to the Galatians. And it is incumbent upon every true shepherd and every spiritual leader in the church of the Lord Jesus Christ to likewise weigh in with the same heavy pronouncement of judgment upon all who corrupt the gospel of Christ. In fact, Titus 1 verse 9 says, to even be qualified to be an elder in the church, you must be able to both teach sound doctrine and to refute those who contradict. It's a sharp two-edged sword. It cuts both ways. Nehemiah, in chapter 4, when he was on the wall, he had a sword in one hand and a trowel in the other. And Spurgeon took that imagery and named his magazine the, the Sword and Trowel because he believed that the man of God must be like Nehemiah on the wall with a trowel in one hand building up the saints and building up the work of God and building up the church. But with the other hand, with a sword fending off the enemies of God who would disrupt the work of the church. John Calvin said every pastor should have two voices when he stands in the pulpit. One to speak to the sheep and with one to speak to the wolves. Ephesians 5 verse 8 says, You are light in the Lord. Do not participate in the unfruitful deeds of darkness, but instead even expose them. All things become visible when they are exposed by the light. Jesus said, Woe to you scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, because you shut off the kingdom of God from people, for you do not enter in yourselves. And there are the imprecatory Psalms of the Old Testament as well, in which David calls for the flames of divine judgment to fall upon the heads of the enemies. Of God. This is Paul's anathemas, and it calls for strong words at strong times. Finally, I want you to note Paul's aim in verse 10. What is driving Paul? What is motivating him? If you lift up the hood of Paul's life, what is the engine that is driving his ministry and and driving him to say what he says. Well, he gives us the answer in verse 10. And it's this same engine that needs to be a a twin-turbo engine in your car that is driving your life. He says in verse 10, For am I seeking the favor of men or of God? 
This is what every preacher needs to ask himself. This is what every elder in the church needs to ask himself. This is what every Christian needs to ask him or herself. Because if Paul was seeking the favor of men, he would certainly tone it down, would he not? But Paul is not courting the approval of men. Paul is not running for office. And he's certainly not wanting the approval of the Judaizers who are destroying the church. Instead, his one highest ambition, the top rung on the ladder of motivations that is driving him, is solely deo gloria, for the glory of God alone, and to please this God who has enlisted him into the ministry and who has entrusted him with the message. He then asks the second question, or am I striving to please men? If so, then he would tamper with the message just like all of these other charlatans. But he's not striving to please men. And so therefore, he's not trying to tickle their ears. He's not trying to slap their backs. He's not trying to grease their palms. Paul is telling them the truth for the good of their soul. This confrontation, this kind of what seems to us as harsh language, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, is hardly calculated to win the approval of men, right? Men-pleasers simply do not hurl anathemas at those who preach the false gospel. Let me put it as simply to you, put it to you as simply as I can. If you please God, it does not matter who you displease. And if you displease God, it does not matter who you please. At this point, ministry is very simple. Please God. Paul then concludes in verse 10, he says, If I were still trying to please men, I would not, I would not, I could not be a bondservant of Christ. The two are mutually exclusive, can never be mutually inclusive. It's either or, not both and. Jesus put it this way, no one can serve two masters. For either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. Paul's had to come to this intersection. Paul's had to come to this crossroad. And he has chosen that he will be a bondservant of the Lord Jesus Christ and will not sell his soul to the devil in order to please men. When Martin Lloyd-Jones was the pastor at Westminster Chapel, before he entered the ministry, he was a physician, an assistant under Sir Thomas Horder. And he said this regarding those who wanted to influence him what to preach and how to preach. He said, when I was a physician, I never let the patient write the prescription. And that's good medicine and good practice for pastors. 
1 Thessalonians 2 verse 4, Paul said, Just as we have been approved by men to be entrusted with the gospel, so we speak. Not as pleasing men, but pleasing God who examines our hearts. Listen, we're not going to stand before men on the last day. We're not going to stand before the congregation on the last day. We're not even going to stand before the elder board on the last day. As necessary as these things are, it's going to be one-on-one, you, me, each of us individually at the judgment seat of Christ, 2 Corinthians 5.10. Therefore, we shall all appear before the judgment seat of Christ. James 3.1, let not many of you become teachers, my brethren, knowing as such we shall incur a stricter judgment. It's going to be stricter for some than for others, because unto whom much is given, the same shall be required. And for those who are allowed to stand behind this sacred desk and stand before precious souls like you and open this book and to say what God says, you better get it right. And any departure from the high ground of the one true saving gospel of Christ, let him be anathema. 2 Timothy 4 verse 3. Paul writing to Timothy, he says, there will come this time when they will want to have their ears tickled and they will accumulate for themselves. Can't you just see that? They're stockpiling for themselves. One on top of another. They work their way into pulpit committees. They work their way into denominational headquarters. They work their way into being in charge of conferences. They work their way into publishing houses. They work their way onto radio stations. They will accumulate for themselves teachers in accordance to their own desires. And this is within the church. So that's why he says, Timothy, you're going to have to fulfill your ministry. You're going to have to fill full. You're going to have to fill up the entirety of what needs to be said as you stand to preach the Word. Paul would say, I was chosen by God, predestined by God, called by God, regenerated by God, set apart by God, saved by God, redeemed by God, um, taught by God, enlightened by God, appointed by God, commissioned by God. Why in the world would I now suddenly want to please men? On the last day, it will be before the Lord Jesus Christ that we will stand and we, we will be judged. And we will be either rewarded or passed over. This is a matter of extreme importance. So what must we do? In conclusion, number one, we've got to know the gospel. We just can't toss this term around. We've got to know the gospel. Because in knowing the gospel, that enables you to smell a rat. You need to know substitution, propitiation, reconciliation, redemption, imputation, justification, sanctification. You must know the essential doctrines of the gospel. 
In order to discover counterfeit money at the U.S. Treasury, they give you real money. And it is only as you master real money can you detect and discern funny money, false money. And we have to know the gospel in its richness and in its, in its fullness. Second, we have to champion the gospel. We must preach it. We must proclaim it. We must declare it. We must announce it. We just can't leave it in our doctrinal statements. We just can't leave it in our Bible. We've got to shout it from the housetops. Third, we must guard the gospel. We must expose error. We must stand against those who would tamper with its message. We must, as Paul said to Timothy, fight the good fight. Fight for the gospel. Jude 3, contend earnestly for the faith which was once and for all delivered to the saints. And then finally, suffer for the gospel. How much suffering for the gospel do you think there is in the prosperity gospel? We must be willing to pay the price to advance the gospel and to defend it. We must be willing to suffer rejection and to suffer opposition and to suffer persecution. We must be willing to even die for the gospel if called upon. In the front of my preaching Bible, I just happen to think of this, I have a picture of John Rogers. He was burned at the stake in 1555. I've got the wood carving in the back of him in the flames. He is the first martyr burned at the stake by Bloody Mary at Smithfield in London, England. He was fighting for the gospel. He was contending for the gospel. And it cost him his life. William Tyndale, all he did was translate the gospel into the English language. They, first they strangled him to death with a metal chain. Then they dropped him into a fire to be burned. Then they put gunpowder all around his torso and blew him up into so many pieces there was nothing to bury. That's that's being willing to suffer for the gospel of Jesus Christ. He, He was willing to leave England and to go underground on the European continent for 12 years to never marry, to live in back rooms and in closets as he is secretly, under the cloak of secrecy, translating the Bible from the original languages into the English language. That, that's the first man to put one of these into, the, into our people's hands who speak the English language. And he had to literally be hung to death, burned to death, and blown up to death. In essence, die three times just to get the gospel advanced to us. It's going to require us to pay whatever is necessary. I don't know what it'll cost. We're just going to say on the front end to the Lord, whatever it costs, whatever it costs, I'll pay at this level. There's some things I'm not going to die for. But this is one of the things I'll die for. And so, 
This is guarding the gospel. And as we are surrounded by the spiritual insanity of the prosperity gospel, we must do whatever it is we can do to pray, to preach, to expose, because the eternal destiny of souls is at stake. Where are you in this? Do you feel as deeply as Paul feels? Do you feel the pulse? Do you see the veins in his neck standing out as he writes this? This is the one letter Paul didn't even bother to dictate. I'm writing this one myself. And he wrote it in, in boxcar-sized letters so that whoever reads it can read it without glasses. That's how strongly Paul felt about this. And if we are to be of one mind with him and to stand with God, then we have to stand in the same place. May God seal to our hearts the height and depth and breadth and length of the truth from this text. Let us pray. Father in heaven, we praise you that you have given to us this treasure of the gospel that contains the unsearchable riches of Christ that is the repository of the sinless life and the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ. These are precious items contained in this treasury. And Lord, I pray that you would deepen its truths within us and that we would soar to the heights of heaven when we sing its truths, that we would love you all the more and love Christ as we contemplate the truths of your gospel. And Lord, to the extent that we love the truth, we hate the lie. And so I pray that you would shaken us, you would shaken us from any passivity or neutrality, and that you would awaken us and arouse us to fight the good fight and to man our post and not be found deserting you in these days. So, Father, may these verses ring in our ears and may they be a trumpet blast to our soul. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.